Chapter Two of Pellucidar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. Pellucidar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Two. Traveling with Terror. We made camp there beside the peaceful river. There Perry told me all that had befallen him since I had departed for the outer crust. It seemed that Huja had made it appear that I had intentionally left Diane behind, and that I did not propose ever returning to Pellucidar. He told them that I was of another world, and that I had tired of this and of its inhabitants. To Diane he had explained that I had a mate in the world to which I was returning, that I had never intended taking Diane the Beautiful back with me, and that she had seen the last of me. Shortly afterward Diane had disappeared from the camp, nor had Perry seen or heard aught of her since. He had no conception of the time that had elapsed since I had departed, but guessed that many years had dragged their slow way into the past. Huja, too, had disappeared very soon after Diane had left, the Saurians under Gok, the Hairy One, and the Amazites under Decor, the Strong One, Diane's brother, had fallen out over my supposed defection, for Gok would not believe that I had thus treacherously deceived and deserted them. The result had been that these two powerful tribes had fallen upon one another with the new weapons that Perry and I had taught them to make and to use. Other tribes of the new federation took sides with the original disputants, or set up petty revolutions of their own. The result was the total demolition of the work we had so well started. Taking advantage of the tribal war, the Mahars had gathered their Sagoths in force, and fallen upon one tribe after another in rapid succession, wreaking awful havoc among them, and reducing them for the most part to as pitiable a state of terror as that from which we had raised them. Alone of all the once mighty federation, the Saurians and the Amazites, with a few other tribes, continued to maintain their defiance of the Mahars. But these tribes were still divided among themselves, nor had it seemed at all probable to Perry, when he had last been among them, that any attempt at reamalgamation would be made. And thus, Your Majesty, he concluded, has faded back into oblivion of the Stone Age, our wondrous dream, and with it has gone the first empire of Pellucidar. We both had to smile at the use of my royal title, yet I was indeed still emperor of Pellucidar, and some day I meant to rebuild what the vile act of the treacherous Huja had torn down. But first I would find my empress. To me she was worth forty empires. Have you no clue as to the whereabouts of Diane? I asked. "'None whatever,' replied Perry. "'It was in search of her that I came to the pretty pass in which you discovered me, and from which, David, you saved me. "'I knew perfectly well that you had not intentionally deserted either Diane or Pellucidar. "'I guessed that in some way Huja, the sly one, was at the bottom of the matter, "'and I determined to go to Amos, where I guessed that Diane might come to the protection of her brother, "'and do my utmost to convince her.' and through her decor the strong one, that we had all been victims of a treacherous plot to which you were no party. 
I came to Amos after a most trying and terrible journey, only to find that Diane was not among her brother's people, and that they knew not of her whereabouts. Decor, I am sure, wanted to be fair and just, but so great were his grief and anger over the disappearance of his sister that he could not listen to reason, but kept repeating time and again that only your return to Pellucidar could prove the honesty of your intentions. Then came a stranger from another tribe, sent, I am sure, at the instigation of Huja. He so turned the Amazites against me that I was forced to flee their country to escape assassination. In attempting to return to Sari, I became lost, and then the Sagoths discovered me. For a long time I eluded them, hiding in caves and wading in rivers to throw them off my trail. I lived on nuts and fruits and the edible roots that chance threw in my way. I traveled on and on, in what directions I could not even guess, and at last I could elude them no longer, and the end came as I had long foreseen that it would come, except that I had not foreseen that you would be there to save me. We rested in our camp until Perry had regained sufficient strength to travel again. We planned much, rebuilding all our shattered air castles, but above all we planned most to find Diane. I could not believe that she was dead, yet where she might be in this savage world and under what frightful conditions she might be living, I could not guess. When Perry was rested, we returned to the prospector, where he fitted himself out fully like a civilized human being, underclothing, socks, shoes, khaki jacket, and breeches, and good substantial putties. When I had come upon him, he was clothed in rough saddock sandals, a g-string and a tunic fashion from the shaggy hide of a thag. Now he wore real clothing again for the first time since the ape-folk had stripped us of our apparel that long-gone day that had witnessed our advent within Pellucidar. With a bandolier of cartridges across his shoulder, two six-shooters at his hips, and a rifle in his hand, he was a much rejuvenated Perry. Indeed, he was quite a different person altogether from the rather shaky old man who had entered the prospector with me ten or eleven years before, for the trial trip that had plunged us into such wondrous adventures and into such a strange and hitherto undreamed-of world. Now he was straight and active. His muscles, almost atrophied from disuse in his former life, had filled out. He was still an old man, of course, but instead of appearing ten years older than he really was, as he had when we left the outer world, he now appeared about ten years younger. The wild free life of Pellucidar had worked wonders for him. Well, it must need have done so or killed him, for a man of Perry's former physical condition could not long have survived the dangers and rigors of the primitive life of the inner world. Perry had been greatly interested in my map and in the Royal Observatory at Greenwich. By use of the pedometers we had retraced our way to the prospector with ease and accuracy. Now that we were ready to set out again, we decided to follow a different route on the chance that it might lead us into more familiar territory. I shall not weary you with a repetition of the countless adventures of our long search. Encounters with wild beasts of gigantic size were of almost daily occurrence, but with our deadly express rifles we ran comparatively little risk when one recalls 
that previously we had both traversed this world of frightful dangers, inadequately armed with crude, primitive weapons, and all but naked. We ate and slept many times, so many that we lost count, and so I do not know how long we roamed, though our map shows the distances and directions quite accurately. We must have covered a great many thousand square miles of territory, and yet we had seen nothing in the way of a familiar landmark, when, from the heights of a mountain range we were crossing, I descried far in the distance great masses of billowing clouds. Now clouds are practically unknown in the skies of Pellucidar. The moment that my eyes rested upon them, my heart leaped. I seized Perry's arm, and pointing toward the horizonless distance, shouted, The mountains of the clouds! They lie close to Futra, and the country of our worst enemies, the Mahars, Perry remonstrated. I know it, I replied, but they give us a starting point from which to prosecute our search intelligently. They are at least a familiar landmark. They tell us that we are upon the right trail and not wandering far in the wrong direction. Furthermore, close to the mountains of the clouds dwells a good friend, Jaw the Mesop. You did not know him, but you know all that he did for me and all that he will gladly do to aid me. At least he can direct us upon the right direction toward Sari. The mountains of the clouds constitute a mighty range, replied Perry. They must cover an enormous territory. How are you to find your friend in all the great country that is visible from their rugged flanks? Easily, I answered him, for Jaw gave me minute directions. I recall almost his exact words. You need merely come to the foot of the highest peak of the mountains of the clouds. There you will find a river that flows into the Laurel As. Directly opposite the mouth of the river you will see three large islands far out, so far that they are barely discernible. The one to the extreme left as you face them from the mouth of the river is Anarok, where I rule the tribe of Anarok. And so we hastened onward toward the great cloud mass, that was to be our guide for several weary marches. At last we came close to the towering crags, alp-like in their grandeur. Rising nobly among its noble fellows, one stupendous peak reared its giant head thousands of feet above the others. It was he whom we sought, but at its foot no river wound down toward any sea. It must rise from the opposite side, suggested Perry casting a rueful glance at the forbidding heights that barred our further progress. We cannot endure the arctic cold of those high-flung passes, and to traverse the endless miles about this interminable range might require a year or more. The land we seek must lie upon the opposite side of the mountains. Then we must cross them, I insisted. Perry shrugged. We can't do it, David, he repeated. We are dressed for the tropics. We should freeze to death among the snows and glaciers long before we had discovered a pass to the opposite side. We must cross them, I reiterated. We will cross them. I had a plan, and that plan we carried out. It took some time. First we made a permanent camp part way up the slopes where there was good water. Then we set out in search of the great shaggy cave bear of the higher altitudes. He is a mighty animal, a terrible animal. He is but little larger than his cousin of the lesser, lower hills, 
but he makes up for it in the awfulness of his ferocity and in the length and thickness of his shaggy coat. It was his coat that we were after. We came upon him quite unexpectedly. I was trudging in advance along a rocky trail worn smooth by the padded feet of countless ages of wild beasts. At a shoulder of the mountain around which the path ran, I came face to face with the titan. I was going up for a fur coat. He was coming down for breakfast. Each realized that here was the very thing he sought. With a horrid roar the beast charged me. At my right the cliff rose straight upward for thousands of feet. At my left it dropped into a dim, abysmal canyon. In front of me was the bear. Behind me was Perry. I shouted to him in warning, and then I raised my rifle and fired into the broad breast of the creature. There was no time to take aim. The thing was too close upon me. But that my bullet took effect was evident from the howl of rage and pain that broke from the frothing jowls. It didn't stop him, though. I fired again, and then he was upon me. Down I went beneath his ton of maddened, clawing flesh and bone and sinew. I thought my time had come. I remember feeling sorry for poor old Perry, left all alone in this inhospitable savage world. And then, of a sudden, I realized that the bear was gone, and that I was quite unharmed. I leaped to my feet, my rifle still clutched in my hand, and looked about for my antagonist. I thought that I should find him farther down the trail, probably finishing Perry, and so I leaped in the direction I supposed him to be, to find Perry perched upon a projecting rock several feet above the trail. My cry of warning had given him time to reach this point of safety. There he squatted, his eyes wide and his mouth ajar, the picture of abject terror and consternation. "'Where is he?' he cried when he saw me. "'Where is he?' "'Didn't he come this way?' I asked. "'Nothing came this way,' replied the old man. "'But I heard his roars. He must have been as large as an elephant.' "'He was,' I admitted. "'But where in the world do you suppose he disappeared to?' Then came a possible explanation to my mind. I returned to the point at which the bear had hurled me down, and peered over the edge of the cliff into the abyss below. Far, far down I saw a small brown blotch near the bottom of the canyon. It was the bear. My second shot must have killed him, and so his dead body, after hurling me to the path, had toppled over into the abyss. I shivered at the thought of how close I, too, must have been to going over with him. It took us a long time to reach the carcass, and arduous labor to remove the great pelt, but at last the thing was accomplished, and we returned to camp dragging the heavy trophy behind us. Here we devoted another considerable period to scraping and curing it. When this was done to our satisfaction, we made heavy boots, trousers, and coats of the shaggy skin, turning the fur in. From the scraps we fashioned caps that came down around our ears, with flaps that fell about our shoulders and breasts. We were now fairly well equipped for our search for a pass to the opposite side of the mountains of the clouds. Our first step now was to move our camp upward to the very edge of the perpetual snows which capped this lofty range. Here we built a snug, secure little hut, which we provisioned and stored with fuel for its diminutive fireplace. 
With our hut as a base, we sallied forth in search of a pass across the range. Our every move was carefully noted upon our maps, which we now kept in duplicate. By this means we were saved tedious and unnecessary retracing of ways already explored. Systematically we worked upward in both directions from our base, and when we had at last discovered what seemed might prove a feasible pass, we moved our belongings to a new hut farther up. It was hard work, cold, bitter, cruel work. Not a step did we take in advance, but the grim reaper strode silently in our tracks. There were the great cave bears in the timber, and gaunt, lean wolves, huge creatures twice the size of our Canadian timber wolves. Farther up we were assailed by enormous white bears, hungry, devilish fellows, who came roaring across the rough glacier tops at the first glimpse of us, or stalked us stealthily by scent when they had not yet seen us. It is one of the peculiarities of life within Pellucidar that man is more often the hunted than the hunter. Myriad are the huge-bellied carnivora of this primitive world. Never from birth to death are those great bellies sufficiently filled, so always are their mighty owners prowling about in search of meat. Terribly armed for battle as they are, man presents to them in his primal state an easy prey, slow of foot, puny of strength, ill-equipped by nature with natural weapons of defense. The bears looked upon us as easy meat. Only our heavy rifles saved us from prompt extinction. Poor Perry never was a raging lion at heart, and I am convinced that the terrors of that awful period must have caused him poignant mental anguish. When we were abroad, pushing our trail farther and farther toward the distant break which, we assumed, marked a feasible way across the range, we never knew at what second some great engine of clawed and fanged destruction might rush upon us from behind, or lie in wait for us beyond an ice hummock or a jutting shoulder of the craggy steeps. The roar of our rifles was constantly shattering the world-old silence of stupendous canyons upon which the eye of man had never before gazed. And when in the comparative safety of our hut we lay down to sleep, the great beast roared and fought without the walls, clawed and battered at the door, or rushed their colossal frames headlong against the hut's sides until it rocked and trembled to the impact. Yes, it was a gay life. Perry had got to taking stock of our ammunition each time we returned to the hut. It became something of an obsession with him. He'd count our cartridges one by one, and then try to figure how long it would be before the last was expended, and we must either remain in the hut until we starve to death, or venture forth empty to fill the belly of some hungry bear. I must admit that I too felt worried, for our progress was indeed snail-like, and our ammunition could not last forever. In discussing the problem, finally we came to the decision to burn our bridges behind us and make one last supreme effort to cross the divide. It would mean that we must go without sleep for a long period, and with the further chance that when the time came that sleep could no longer be denied, we might still be high in the frozen regions of perpetual snow and ice, where sleep would mean certain death exposed as we would be to the attacks of wild beasts and without shelter from the hideous cold.
but we decided that we must take these chances, and so at last we set forth from our hut for the last time, carrying such necessities as we felt we could least afford to do without. The bears seemed unusually troublesome and determined that time, and as we clambered slowly upward beyond the highest point to which we had previously attained, the cold became infinitely more intense. Presently, with two great bears dogging our footsteps, we entered a dense fog. We had reached the heights that are so often cloud-wrapped for long periods. We could see nothing a few paces beyond our noses. We dared not turn back into the teeth of the bears which we could hear grunting behind us, to meet them in this bewildering fog would have been to court instant death. Perry was almost overcome by the hopelessness of our situation. He flopped down on his knees and began to pray. It was the first time I had heard him at his old habit since my return to Pellucidar, and I had thought that he had given up his little idiosyncrasy, but he hadn't, far from it. I let him pray for a short time, undisturbed and then, as I was about to suggest that we had better be pushing along, one of the bears in our rear let out a roar that made the earth fairly tremble beneath our feet. It brought Perry to his feet as if he had been stung by a wasp, and sent him racing ahead through the blinding fog at a gait that I knew must soon end in disaster were it not checked. Crevasses in the glacier ice were far too frequent to permit of reckless speed even in a clear atmosphere, and then there were hideous precipices along the edges of which our way often led us. I shivered as I thought of the poor old fellow's peril. At the top of my lungs I called to him to stop, but he did not answer me, and then I hurried on in the direction he had gone, faster by far than safety dictated. For a while I thought I heard him ahead of me, but at last, though I paused often to listen and to call to him, I heard nothing more, not even the grunting of the bears that had been behind us. All was deathly silence, the silence of the tomb. About me lay the thick, impenetrable fog. I was alone. Perry was gone, gone forever, I had not the slightest doubt. Somewhere nearby lay the mouth of a treacherous fissure, and far down at its icy bottom lay all that was mortal of my old friend, Abner Perry. There would his body be preserved in its icy sepulchre for countless ages, until on some far distant day the slow-moving river of ice had wound its snail-like way down to the warmer level, there to disgorge its grisly evidence of grim tragedy, and what in that far future age might mean baffling mystery. End of chapter 2